0: This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Connecticut residents over the age of 75 are now eligible to get the COVID-19 vaccine. And starting this week, elderly residents outside of nursing homes will get their first dose of this life-saving shot. Pew Research has found older Americans are much more likely to say they plan to get the COVID-19 vaccine than younger generations, a vaccine that scientists say is key to ending our current epidemic older people are more vulnerable to getting sick and dying from COVID. Another reason why so many of our country's oldest residents may be eager to get vaccinated is because many of them grew up in fear of another terrifying, incurable virus that paralyzed and killed children, polio. Many of those same seniors may remember the announcement of another vaccine nearly 65 years ago that changed the world.
2: This is Tuesday, April 12th. 1955,
3: a day which may well mark the most significant event in all of medical history. The world will very soon know whether the battle against the disease that has twisted hundreds of thousands of young bodies has been won.
0: That's from the BBC documentary, The Polio Story. Today where we live, we listen back to our 2018 episode about life in the time of polio. Because of widespread vaccination, this deadly disease has nearly been eradicated. My first guest was awarded the 2006 Pulitzer Prize in History for his book that described the terror polio evoked in the United States. In the book, Polio, an American Story, Dr. David Oshinsky explains how the development of the polio vaccine helped nearly eradicate the disease.
3: Well, I I am old enough to have lived in the years before there was a polio vaccine. So every summer polio would come like the plague. The New York City newspapers where I lived would literally have box scores of the number of kids entering polio wards. And it would come around June, it would get higher in July, it would spike in August and then start to go down after Labor Day. And during that time, um, tens of thousands of children would be paralyzed by this disease. I remember coming back to school every September, and you'd see kids in leg braces, um, uh, children in wheelchairs, the occasional empty desk where the child had not made it through the summer but had died. Uh, The belief was that polio was transmitted through the water, so they would close all the swimming pools, the beaches around New York City. This was from the end of World War II until the uh, 1950s when the vaccine uh, came in, and uh, we couldn't go out in crowds. We couldn't go to movie theaters. The belief was you basically stayed by yourself. Everything a kid wanted to do in that era, a kid could not do because of the fear of polio. I remember my mother used to give me a polio test. On her own every week you know could I touch my toes could I put my chin to my chest and if you had the slightest stomach ache or stiffness in your body there was a real panic Mm -hmm. that uh, that you may be get coming down with polio and at that time there was no cure there was no prevention Every child was at risk. It didn't matter if you were a hands-on parent, a hands-off parent. Um, your child was vulnerable. So it was an extremely frightening experience. And it just came like clockwork every summer.
0: Uh, David, you mentioned that the belief was it came through the water. So, Was this a virus that uh, was transmitted through fecal material? Can you tell us more about that?
3: Yeah. um, Polio is really uh, transmitted by oral fecal contact. So it can be in the water. It can be in food. It can be uh, two kids playing together and uh, sharing an object or, you know, shaking hands or wrestling. It's a viral disease. It basically goes through the mouth into the gut. And in Almost 99% of the cases you will, as a child or whoever has it, you will just excrete the virus out and you'll be fine. But in a small number of children, the virus travels through the bloodstream into the central nervous system, and that's where the problem is caused. Um, What the virus does is to destroy nerve cells in the spinal cord, which cause uh, muscle wasting and paralysis.
0: How far back can we trace polio, and why did we see it reach epidemic proportions at the turn of the 20th century?
3: That that is really one of the most interesting questions. Polio has been around for thousands of years, but always in endemic form. In other words, just scattered cases. Something happened in the West. In Western Europe, in the United States, in Canada, early in the 20th century. And what you begin to see for the first time is polio in epidemic form. In other words, a hundred kids are getting it, then a thousand, then ten thousand. And the belief is that polio is actually a disease of cleanliness, that the more antiseptic our society became the less likely kids, particularly infants who had maternal antibodies, were to be exposed to the disease at an early age. And therefore what you begin to see is not only are the number of cases rising, but the age of the person who's coming down with polio. You know, it used to be called infantile paralysis. It was infant, It was two year olds, three year olds, five year olds. Suddenly it's teenagers, adults, and, of course, the most famous polio survivor of all was Franklin Roosevelt, President Roosevelt, who got it at the age of 39.
0: Uh, you mentioned uh, that this was a, a disease that, uh, that was uh, found in, in Western Europe, and then it managed to come over to the United States. In your book, uh, Polio, An American Story, uh, you talk about some of the sentiment against immigrants uh, in New York City at the turn of the 20th century when people were getting sick. This was thought of, of a disease that they carried here.
3: It is. Polio didn't really begin. And I mean, it starts on its own. In the United States at the very time It's occurring in Western Europe But you know we do have a history uh, Going back to uh, the Irish with Cholera, um, Jews with Tuberculosis, uh, in, the, in the Case of, of, of polio um, The belief really was That the Italians uh, brought it Around 1915 1916 because one of the Neighborhoods that had the first epidemics Was called Pigtown It was an Italian area in New York City um, but the The fact is that immigrants had absolutely nothing to do with it.
0: This is where we live. On the phone with me is Dr. David Oshinsky, again, author and historian. The book that he wrote, Polio, an American Story, was awarded the Pulitzer Prize in History in 2006. Now, do you remember the fear of contracting polio when you were growing up? You can join our conversation. Uh, in studio with me is Joanne Griswold, uh, who took care of polio patients as a young nurse. She's a 1954 graduate of Yukon School of Nursing. Joanne, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. We heard uh, David describe a little bit about what it was like at the time uh, before the vaccine uh, was developed, and we'll get to that in a little bit. But what do you remember about polio?
4: From my youngest, my mother was a registered nurse also. And then I remember, <clears throat> excuse me, her concern. However, she was reasonable. Uh, she made sure that I did get swimming, uh, there were shores, shorelines where we could um, take advantage of that. And feel that we were fairly polio-free. I what I do remember is um, staying out of crowds, not um, not going into a a crowded restaurant or a crowded um, say a concert. And many of these were canceled. It depended on the area. If you were near a town or a city where there was an increase in the number of polio uh, diagnoses, then I do recall that the, um, a lot of the activities, fairs, um, whatever would happen during the summer would be canceled.
0: You mentioned that um, you, so as a child, you were able to swim along uh, the, the Connecticut shore, so you weren't reliant on swimming right. pools that were closed right. at the time. Yes. So when you look back, do you think that the fact that you, were, you did not contract polio, was that just by luck? It could be a little luck.
4: However, um, it was very important. This was one of the things my mother emphasized. Make sure you wash your hands. Keep your hands away from your eyes, mouth. And also um, get your rest, so that your body is in as strong condition as possible. And eat well, a lot of fruit, vegetables, the same things we hear today.
0: Uh, later on, you mentioned your mother was a registered nurse. Yes. Later on, you would go uh, to UConn, a school of nursing. Uh, so when you graduated, uh, by then you were taking care of people with polio.
4: I took care of them as a student. There was an epidemic. Um, that was very prevalent in Southern Connecticut in 1952. I had just started my fourth year uh, in the five-year program. There were a number of adults and children. I happened to be getting um, going through my fourth month of pediatrics, so I was on that. Was communicable diseases. We had a number of children with polio, but the one I remember particularly was a four-year-old. I was uh, told by the intern we were getting a transfer from a nearby hospital and that she would need a respirator. Well, that right there raises a concern, a four-year-old child going into a respirator. She was, um, I would say, probably four and a half, she was brought up the stairs. The intern carried her up the stairs, talking to her very softly. And by that time, I had the uh, respirator all ready to go, thanks to the engineering department. He explained that this was like a tent, only her head would be outside.
0: Is this like the iron lung, the pictures of the iron That's lung? the iron lung,
4: Yes. And We tried to talk to her as um, explaining what was happening in as age-appropriate manner as possible. She was very cooperative, and at that time, of course, was this due to her fear? Um, was she curious? Uh, I think she was just fearful. Um, her mother was expecting another baby. They had brought her in by ambulance. Her mother couldn't come in because she did have polio. And um, she, it was interesting, the emotional state. With a child, it is very important to maintain contact, physical contact. She welcomed us holding her hands, talking to her, reading to her.
0: Uh, Joanne, could you describe the iron lung for us? Because many of us are familiar yes. with that mm-hmm. picture, but not everybody that got polio needed that particular no. treatment. So, what was going on where the polio impacted their breathing, and what did the iron lung do? Okay. there were um, two or three. There were three different types um, of
4: polio, and one was called the bulbar, or the bulbar spinal. When a person was affected with the bulbar polio, it could affect the senses such as taste, sight vision. Um, I mentioned that. Uh, in her case, it was affecting her respiratory system. And that was the most that was it was really feared, because um, if you can't breathe, um, your life essentially ends. The iron lung was a, a tube, a large tube that would hold a human being. It, it did have a cot Type mattress that we made up. um, It operated, the principle of it was to, uh, it's a little different now, but at that time it operated on the principle of negative air pressure. When you removed the air from the tube, it caused an expansion of the chest cavity, which then would cause the lung to expand. And then there was air that was injected, essentially, best way I can explain it, into the uh, lungs of the person.
0: David Oshinsky is uh, with us by phone. Uh, David, uh, for uh, the children that and others that had to rely on the iron lung, was this something that was a lifelong uh, treatment for them, or were they able uh, to get better?
3: That's, that's a good question. And it was really just described beautifully. One of the other... Uh, problems that you were on your back with your head exposed so you basically saw the world through mirrors so you you actually saw the world backwards Um, it was it was a very frightening and disorienting experience Uh, most people would be in the eye and lung for a couple of weeks or even a couple of days and then once their breathing stabilized they could leave Um, there were people, I have a couple in my book. One, one man was in an iron lung for 25 years. Uh, one woman died relatively recently. She'd been in the iron lung for about 50 years during a power failure. So in other words, the iron lung really became your, your, your life-saving prison. Um, the iron lung had been basically invented for gas workers who were overcome by gas, so it was supposed to be a very temporary measure. But uh, as was just beautifully well described, um, if you had bulbar polio, uh, it might be something that would be not, you know, after two or three weeks, you were not any better, and you would have to stay in the iron lung either until you died, um, and and this this could be a process that took years. Most kids were in and out, I would say, within a matter of months, but there there was a significant minority for whom the iron lung became a, a lifetime experience.
0: And a precarious situation if the electricity went out,
3: Joanne, what would yes. happen then?
4: We pumped. We had a pump and we would have to manually operate the iron lung. And that did happen. Um, this, uh, when people were in the iron lung, there was an, uh, an attempt made to wean them from it. Some people, as Dr. Wyszynski has commented, um, would leave the iron lung and do well without it. There were others who could not breathe on their own most of the time. They would be weaned to a chest ventilator. It was like a convex um, plastic uh, cone, uh, half a cone, that would be placed over the chest, and it would be um, operated essentially the same as the premise was, the same as the iron lung. They um, did well with that. Some, I had one patient <clears throat> who finally went home. Her husband had um, architecturally changed the house so that it would be uh, appropriate for her with her children, the three kids. She was graduated from the iron lung in the hospital, but only during the day. I understand, because I read an article about her a number of years later in the newspaper, that she eventually was out of the iron lung during the day, but every night had to go back into it. But the ventilator allowed her to be up in a wheelchair, out in the garden with her children, and so forth.
0: This is where we live. Today, we're talking about polio, and later on, we're going to hear more about the development of the vaccine that helped eradicate uh, this disease from the United States. Uh, When, um, Joanne, when you were uh, treating these patients, again, this was a contagious disease. What were the fears uh, that medical professionals had about getting it, and what did you do to protect yourself?
4: We were cautioned. Of course, by instructors, before we ever went to work on a unit, we were given the um, a very thorough orientation. The most important thing is again hand washing. Now, when I was a student, it was felt Yale felt that the organism was inject ingested, so we did not wear masks nor um Gowns, disposable gowns. A few years later, when I worked at Mass General, they were still gowning up. Um, there was an epidemic in 55 in northern New England, and I took care of patients at that time at that hospital. Um, we had masks. We The gowns were over an OR scrub gown. It was a totally different scene. But there, was, there were still concerns about the possibility you could... Um, inhale the organism. As far as protecting ourselves, I never felt when I was working that I was exposed to it any more than I would be walking out on the sidewalk or going into an office building, for example. In fact, that was the only time I had a concern. I had to go into a large building in the center of Boston I was in an elevator with about 30 people. (laughs) Did you not breathe? (laughs) I felt like, I asked myself, should I hold my breath? Um, But I just felt you do what you can. You wash your hands. We wore rubber gloves in certain instances. Rubber gloves were not used as much then as they are now.
0: Before we had to break, Joanna, yeah. I wanted to ask you, when uh, news of this vaccine came out, uh, describe uh, how you felt, how your colleagues felt. Very
4: happy. Oh, this was wonderful. In fact, I mentioned to Carmen that I had never seen such a happy group of medical students facing their final exams because they gave us the vaccine at the hospital. And they were just, it was like a party, uh, we were thrilled, of course, for children. There were way too many children whose lives were affected, families who were affected.
0: Joanne Griswold, uh, again, is a 1954 graduate of UConn School of Nursing. Uh, she uh, helped treat uh, patients uh, with polio uh, early on in her career and was registered nurse for 64 years, who now lives in Massachusetts. Joanne, thank you so much for joining us here on Where We Live. Well, thank you again for inviting me. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchil Again, we're talking about polio today. It's a disease that affected tens of thousands of Americans in the first half of the 20th century. Dr. David Oshinsky will stay with us as we continue our conversation. He's the author of Polio, an American Story. Now, through science and philanthropic efforts, polio has been eradicated in the U.S., but where does it persist around the globe? We're going to find out after the break, and you can join us too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we've been talking about polio. The epidemic peaked in 1952 in the U.S. when there were nearly 60,000 cases. 3,000 people died. But the development of a vaccine helped eradicate polio from the U.S. Dr. Jonas Salk from the University of Pittsburgh developed the polio vaccine more than 60 years ago. To tell us more, my guest today on the phone is Dr. David Oshinsky, author of Polio, an American Story, which won the Pulitzer Prize in History in 2006. Uh, David, can you tell us more about Jonas Salk and how uh, his work led to these trials starting in, in 1954?
3: Sure. Uh, Jonas Salk was um, heavily subsidized by the March of Dimes. You have to realize this was an era in which there was no federal money going into medical research. There was no big pharma doing medical trials, so everything had to be done privately. And you had this remarkable organization begun by Franklin Roosevelt, in which the entire country sort of took on polio as the national disease to be conquered, Uh, everyone just giving a dime or sort of recruiting other people to give coins. And they raised really tens of millions of dollars. And they used a lot of this money to look for a vaccine. It was they realized it was going to be hard to cure the disease and indeed indeed, the disease has not been cured, but they could prevent the disease and what they did was to begin looking for scientists who would basically follow a playbook and bring about um, a vaccine. And there were two, there was Jonas Salk who had a killed virus vaccine at the university of Pittsburgh and Albert Sabin, who was working on a live virus vaccine at the university of Cincinnati. Salk came out first. And what Salk did, I mean, th- those were different days. I mean, he tested on probably 100,000 monkeys, 100,000 monkeys and chimpanzees were sacrificed. Then he went to testing of children, and much of the testing was done in orphanages, or what they called in those days, homes for the feeble-minded. You basically just went in, you got the consent of the administrator who ran it, and you tested. And finally, they realized that they had to test on hundreds of thousands and maybe millions of children, and in what was the largest public health experiment in American history, Almost 2,000, two mil, I'm sorry, almost 2 million children were lined up. Some were observed controls, but most were given three doses of live, uh, of, of the, of the uh, killed virus polio vaccine, and about half were given a lookalike placebo, and what they would do then was to just check and see, and this was an era before computers, if there was any difference between those who were given the real vaccine and those who were given the placebo. It took a full year to sort of figure this out. And then, in one of the most remarkable press conferences in American history, a uh, word came down the polio vaccine was safe, it was potent, and it was effective. And they, they literally declared a national holiday um, when, that, when that word came down. I, I can remember it very well as, as a school child. <clears throat> Excuse me. And, for, and uh, President Eisenhower, invited Jonas Salk to the Rose Garden where, for the first Mm -hmm. time in anyone's memory, President Eisenhower broke down in tears as he thanked Jonas Salk for saving the children of America and and the world. And
0: David, I think we have a clip of uh, President Eisenhower actually speaking to, again, this uh, University of Pittsburgh researcher, Jonas Salk, at that ceremony you mentioned. Here it is.
2: I should like to say to you that when I think of the countless thousands of American parents, and grandparents who are hereafter to be spared the agonizing fears of the annual epidemic of poliomyelitis, when I think of all the agony that these people will be spared as they see loved ones suffering in bed, I must say to you, I have no words in which adequately to express the thanks of myself, all the people I know, and all 164 million Americans to say nothing of all the other people in the world, little profit
0: from your discovery. Uh, earlier, David, you mentioned uh, that Franklin Roosevelt was probably one of the most famous cases of polio, and it was uh, you know his awareness and, and efforts, along with an individual that you talk about in your book, uh, that uh, helped raise money uh, for these uh, vaccine uh, research. Um, if he hadn't had polio, do you think the country would have gotten to that uh, that step so quickly?
3: I love that kind of question. It's a counterfactual question. So you can basically give any answer you'd like. It's a terrific question. I think the answer is we probably would have gotten there because so many vaccines came after measles, chickenpox, MMR, and the like. Um, But uh, but it certainly spurred the process along. Um, Roosevelt really and his his sidekick, Basil O'Connor, began the March of Dimes. And one of the things they did was they turned fundraising on its head. Until that time, if you wanted to have a, a foundation or a charity, you got a couple rich people, they gave a lot of money, and there it was. This was during the Great Depression. There wasn't that, all that much money around from rich people. So what they decided to do was to get the smallest possible donation from the most people. And in doing so, not only did they involve millions upon millions of people, but they got volunteers like my mom, like my mother, who went who went around um, basically soliciting money for the March of Dimes. I remember going with her, carrying a mason jar that would just be filled up with dimes, and we'd come to a big center and pour it on a table. And with that March of Dimes money, the March of Dimes revolutionized philanthropy. If you look at Susan Coleman or, or any of the charities and foundations today, that playbook comes right out of the March of Dimes. The use of poster children, celebrities, the way money is raised. And they also, the March of Dimes dramatically changed medical research in the United States. In other words, um, how you bring together the smartest minds, give them money, and let them basically work um, for a common goal.
0: This is where we live. Today, we're learning more about polio. Again, it affected tens of thousands of Americans. Uh, Children were paralyzed. uh, There were deaths. And uh, on the phone with us is my guest, Dr. David Oshinsky, author of Polio, an American Story. Armanda is calling from Waterbury. Armanda, go ahead. Hi. In
2: 1955, I contracted polio. I was seven. And uh, I was from New Haven, and luckily new haven hospital had um the serum that they were experimenting with and my mother and stepfather had to give permission for them to use it on me because i had this horrible headache and i then i couldn't pick my head up off the couch and in those days the doctors used to come to your house you know and the doctor told them because in our neighborhood Uh, So many children were contracting polio, and a couple of them had died. And um, so I remember staying in the hospital and having needles all day long. And I met a man from New York years later uh, that was a supervisor of mine in Charlotte, North Carolina, and he was paralyzed on his right side, and he had had polio the same year. But because he did not live, you know, where Yale New Haven Hospital and was able to take advantage of um, the new technologies, he became paralyzed and Uh I didn't. I stayed in the hospital for a week and um, that was all. Thank God the medications worked.
0: Well, Armanda, we're glad that uh, you did get better after getting uh, that vaccine. So you have no um, impact from that disease today? Nothing. Well, Armanda, thank you uh, for your call. Um, David, we were uh, talking again uh, about uh, the vaccine development uh, with doc- Dr. Joseph Salk and uh, how families, uh, millions of children, uh, either were able to participate in these trials. Why was it so effective? Was it because people saw how deadly this
3: disease yeah. could be? Um, I I just want to say first that Yale New Haven Hospital um, did some of the most important research in bringing that vaccine to conclusion. So you should be they should be very proud and the people of Connecticut as well. Um, for, For someone like my mother. Uh, this was risk versus reward. It was all the parents. In other words, one of the problems with vaccines today is that they do their work so well that there is virtually no evidence of the disease that they are preventing. When I was a kid, polio was everywhere. So for my mother, the issue was, do we give the child an experimental vaccine or do we take the chance that my child will come down with paralytic polio. And polio as you know is a very visual disease you saw it everywhere. If you go into a coffee shop, you may not know who has a heart condition, but you knew who had polio. You saw the leg braces, you saw the crutches and the like. So for my parents and for the parents of America, this was a no brainer. There was an epidemic every single year. And here was an experimental vaccine that might end that fear forever. And that is Parents were literally pushing their kids into line to be part of that gigantic study or to get the vaccine as soon as it was was proved successful.
0: Uh, And we know that uh, polio has been eradicated here in the United States. I wanted to bring into the conversation now Dr. Melissa Held, infectious disease specialist at Connecticut Children's Hospital. She is also an associate professor of pediatric infectious disease at UConn School of Medicine. Uh, Dr. Held, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Uh, we heard uh, David uh, talk about how uh, because polio, uh, the, uh, the 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 effects of it were uh, so apparent to people that they were rushing to get this vaccine, Where how close is it uh, that polio could be eradicated worldwide? Do we know?
1: We're very close, but we've remained very close for many years. So we have not had a case of polio in the United States since 1979. However, we have had sporadic cases of travelers from other countries coming to the U.S. with polio. I believe the last case was in 1993, so it is still out there. Um, you know, I believe in uh, 2017 there were 22 cases that were uh, at least uh, recorded. Uh, worldwide, you know, there's certainly many countries where they don't have uh, a great way of recording or documenting th- these types of diseases. So I don't know that that's an accurate number. It's probably higher, um, but at least in the U.S. we have not seen it, um, and, and so it's it's hard for parents, I think, to see how an impact of a vaccine today, um,
0: you know, has on our children because they don't see the disease anymore. Mm-hmm. Oh, when, uh when uh, babies are very young, I think at two months, they start getting these uh, uh, vaccinations. So remind us what type of vaccination these infants are receiving and how often do they get it? Sure. So there's uh, there are a lot of vaccines we have today.
1: Um, the typical vaccine schedule starts at around two months of age, and there are several vaccines that they can get. Um, most of the vaccines we give under a year of age uh, are called inactivated or killed vaccines. So um, the piece of bacteria or, or virus is is actually killed or completely inactivated, so it has no chance of reverting to uh, what we call a wild type um, and causing actual disease. Mm -hmm. So two months, four months, six months, and then in the nine to 12-month range, there are uh, several vaccines that are given. We have the, uh, we call DTAP, which is diphtheria, tetanus, and pertussis. We have a rotavirus vaccine now, which uh, helps prevent uh, gastroenteritis in children, Uh, the polio vaccine. uh, And we also have something called Prevnar. It's Prevnar 13, which is against pneumococcal diseases.
0: Uh, David, I wanted to go back to you. We heard uh, Dr. Held uh, mentioned that there haven't been any recent cases uh, of this particular polio for some time, but where does it still persist in the world?
3: As best we know, uh, there there are just a couple of countries where wild polio virus is still circulating, uh, Pakistan, Afghanistan, and Nigeria. They're often in areas... Where, in particular, in pa- Pakistan, Afghanistan, the uh, Taliban is very, very powerful. The Taliban opposes vaccination in most cases, uh, seeing it sort of as a Western plot. And uh, as as you and your audience may know, dozens and dozens of female vaccinators in Pakistan have been killed by the by the Taliban. Um, so it's very dangerous to go out there. The number is probably 22 is. Uses is the number of cases of polio today in those three countries. The number certainly is higher. The problem is getting it down to zero, and that is going to be a, a very, very tough sell we've uh, you know we've gotten the numbers down from hundreds of thousands in the 80s down to under 100 today the reason you want to get the number down to zero is you want to stop the transmission of wild polio virus and as long as that wild polio virus is circulating we must keep uh inoculating and vaccinating our children because polio is only a plane ride away. In other words, if we go below herd immunity, a number in the United States where not enough people are being vaccinated against polio and wild polio virus comes here, we can have an epidemic. Uh,
0: Dr. Held, uh, quickly describe herd immunity.
1: Sure. So that's a great segue. So herd immunity is something that uh, is talked about a lot when we talk about vaccines it's basically the ability of a population to protect those who are not vaccinated against infectious diseases. And it's different for every disease. So typically, you need somewhere in the 80s to 90% of a population to be vaccinated against a disease to in order to protect others who are not. And really, what herd immunity is meant for Um, is to protect those who can't be vaccinated. So they're either too young, so are newborns, um, and those with medical conditions. So they're getting chemotherapy for cancer or they have an immune problem. Those are the patients who we really want to protect.
0: And coming up, we're going to hear from a Granby, Connecticut resident who does rely on herd immunity because of a medical condition. But I wanted to fit a a quick call in. Uh, Edward is calling from stores. Edward... Oh, I don't think uh, Edward is there anymore. Uh, I guess I'll just uh, end with uh, David again, David Oshinsky, author of Polio, an American Story. Um, When we uh, think about uh, how the only disease that's really out there that's been ever completely eradicated is smallpox. uh, With your research and and what you've learned uh, in um, the work that you've done, do you think we'll see worldwide eradication of polio?
3: I am, I am certain we will see it. I will say very briefly that in a way it was much easier to eradicate smallpox because the people who get smallpox show the symptoms immediately. So you can use containment and surveillance. With polio, people can be silent carriers. They can carry the virus without even knowing they get the disease. So they're everywhere, which means you basically have to vaccinate every child. We will do that. We did it in India. Nobody thought India could be completely polio-free this quickly, but it has been. Uh, wild circulating polio virus is gone in India. There have been no cases in India. If we can do it there, we can do it anywhere.
0: We'll have to leave it there. Dr. David Oshinsky, again, author of Polio, an American Story, won the Pulitzer Prize in History in 2006. David's also Director of Medical Humanities at NYU Langone Health. David, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much.
3: My pleasure. Thank you.
0: This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy nall Dr. Melissa Held with uh, Connecticut Children's Medical Center will stay with us as we broaden our discussion to other vaccines most Americans routinely receive today. Why is there mistrust of immunizations when science shows they're effective in preventing deadly diseases? We'll find out after the break. This is Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nolpethanschel. Amid our current global pandemic and the advent of the new COVID-19 vaccine, we're listening back to Where We Live's 2018 conversation about polio. In the first half of the 20th century, summertime would bring polio epidemics that killed many children and left others paralyzed. Today, the disease is nearly eradicated worldwide due to widespread vaccination campaigns. It was a vaccine the American public in the 1950s fully embraced. During this COVID-19 pandemic, we're seeing a vaccine hesitancy among some Americans who are reluctant despite public health experts who say the vaccine is the key to ending the pandemic. In recent years, some preventable diseases that had nearly disappeared in the United States have made a comeback, like measles and whooping cough. Why is there mistrust? Should public health officials change how they talk about vaccinations to parents and caregivers? In my 2018 conversation, I spoke with Kim Brown, a Granby resident with a primary immune deficiency. I asked him to explain why, as an immunocompromised person, she relies on the protection of herd immunity.
5: I have a genetic primary immune deficiency. So um, if people don't vaccinate, I don't really have the opportunity to respond to vaccination. I don't make the antibodies that most people do when they vaccinate.
0: So you have primary immune deficiency. So tell us what you have to do to stay healthy.
5: Um, every day after I get my toddlers to bed, I um, infuse... Three grams of uh, immune globulin, basically what everybody else has circulating already. Um, but I have to do it daily because of how sick I am.
0: When we uh, talk about immunizations uh, in this country, there uh, is um, some uh, mistrust of getting uh, vaccines. How do you talk about this with people you know, with your family, because of your medical condition?
5: Um, I'm actually pretty open about my illness because of that. I see the larger... Benefit of being kind of an open book with anyone who will talk to me. Um, so when my family and I found out I had this, um, it wasn't until later in life, unfortunately, because of however it is, um, I told them, you know, that I try to break it down as basic as I can. I tell them that something is just missing from my immune system. So while I it wants to function, there's just something missing. So in order for me to stay healthy, I rely on them to get their vaccinations. And we practice really good hand washing. You know, um, I just, we just, we make it a routine. It's just normal. You know, they wash their hands as soon as they get in from school. We um, do a lot of talking about antibodies. My four year old could probably tell you what a T cell and a B cell is.
0: So this is your family that you're talking with. But what about um, when you are public about uh, the importance of, of vaccinating, and you're talking to strangers, maybe on social media? Uh, what are the yep. ways that they uh, approach you when it comes to their beliefs on vaccinations? And how do you ca- when how do you um, approach that mistrust that they might have?
5: Um, for the past two years, my health got really out of control. I just haven't really seen a healthy point at this um, stage of my life. But so. For me it's like kind of life or death when people have this conversation with me um recently i had an interaction with a girl um she told me that if i just detoxed my body of vaccinations, i would feel so much better and it really bothered me so um i tried to explain it first i talk about my illness because it's really rare and then i go into talking about the importance of vaccinations I see it as, this is a preventative thing. There was a sign at a doctor's one day that said, if you could give your child a vaccination for cancer, would you? And I thought, heck yeah. Why would you want your child to suffer if you can stop them from that from happening? And it isn't just about me. It's more so the newborn babies. When they leave the hospital, they rely on us as adults to make the choice to vaccinate our kids. It's about elderly people with, on chemo. You like grandma and poppy, you know, you want to vaccinate so that you you can have these long years with them. Um, So I just try to, you know, show them the larger picture. And uh, I try not to rant, but sometimes it really gets to me because, you know, I enjoy my life. I like my kids. I like being here with them. And I can't remain healthy and I can't give them the life that I want to if uh, others are not vaccinating, you know.
0: I wanted to uh, turn back to um, our in-studio guest, Dr. Melissa Held, who's actually an infectious disease specialist at Connecticut Children's uh, Medical Center. Uh, when Kim was talking, you were nodding your head. I'm, I'm curious, uh, I had posed the question at the start of the segment about um, how should medical professionals be talking about vaccinations mm-hmm. with parents because there is, there, are, there is some skepticism. And I'm, I'm curious what you're hearing um, as a doctor and how you approach it. It's it's a very difficult conversation. Many families
1: come in, and, and these are educated families. These, uh, these are often very highly educated families who've done a lot of research on their own on the internet and, you know, have come to certain conclusions about vaccines. Um, this is not a five-minute conversation. And um, really, the primary care pediatricians and family doctors who are in our community are really our frontline providers in having these conversations. When I'm in the hospital, which is primarily where I am based, uh, and we have families who are not vaccinated, a lot of times they'll say, oh, you know, can you come talk to this family? And usually I really just listen. I start just by listening to what their concerns are. Um, Sometimes they're easy misconceptions that I can discuss with them. Um, Many times it's that they're looking at fairly unreliable sources on the internet and uh, so I, I've tried to provide them with some information with that. But again, it, this is a, a conversation that has to happen over time, usually with their with their primary provider. Um, and it is very difficult. I think um, many people say, why would you put something foreign in your child like that? And, you know, what I usually will say to that is the kinds of things we are exposed to on a daily basis are so far more than the tiny, tiny bits that are in these vaccines. And again, um, we know that these work. There are years and years of, of scientific studies to back up that these vaccines work. They work very effectively, but really um, – Having these conversations over time, and really trying to get at what their what their fears are, um, and uh,
0: having an ongoing conversation. We touched on this earlier, but are vaccines in a way a victim of their own success because of uh, science has brought us to this point that people um, are not getting these deadly diseases, but they um, may be skeptical that they need to get this shot because they don't see it in front of them. Uh, when we talk about herd immunity, is that a conversation that doctors need to be explaining more to, to people in their office? I, I think so and I think Dr. Oinnsky had a, a great
1: point that we don't it's not in front of us anymore. Polio was a very Visual disease, um, measles is a very visual disease, uh, and we are seeing more outbreaks of measles within pockets of populations in this country. Typically, in populations that are highly unvaccinated, so I, I think talking about herd immunity is very, very important. And having um, your your guest now um, from Granby, I think that's a great way to um, have people understand how it affects. People in our communities, our neighbors, our children's friends, um, because we don't see a lot of these diseases anymore. But they are out there. And again, as Dr. Ochinski said, it's just a plane right away. These things can happen very, very quickly, and all it takes is someone coming from another country who is already infected.
0: That was Dr. Melissa Held, Infectious Disease Specialist at Connecticut Children's Hospital and Associate Professor of Pediatric Infectious Disease at UConn School of Medicine. She spoke on Where We Live in 2018. You also heard Granby resident Kim Brown. I'm Lucy nall Today's show was produced by Carmen Baskoff. Thanks for listening.